Life in the Spirit is what we're, we've been talking about. Uh, we started this new series of teachings a few weeks ago. I, I believe this will be week three for us now. We've actually been looking specifically at well, what I was just alluding to, the fact that we don't come here to just simply acquire more information about God, but God himself meets with us and, and, and we begin to experience what it actually means to live our lives out in relationship with God in a very personal and, and direct way. Um, now, eventually... Uh, if you're following Jesus, if you've turned from trusting in anything other than Jesus and wholly surrendered your life to him, then someday when you die, you'll go to be with him for eternity in heaven. Um, you'll experience eternal relationship with your creator because of who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. If in fact you've received what he has done for you, that is, that's what we call the gift of salvation. And so that's Eternity, that's life someday in heaven, where we will know God as we have been known by him, perfectly, holy, face to face, in true intimacy. But that actually begins here and now. If any one of you have actually uh, repented and put your faith in Jesus and began to trust and obey him with your life and begun that journey, we get to begin to experience life in the spirit here and now. And so as a church, I would love for us to all grow in that experience or at least gain a greater understanding of what that is so that we can begin to to work it out in our lives so that's that's the big idea behind the series life in the spirit um, so luke chapter 4 let's go ahead and jump into it let me just pray for us real quick lord jesus thank you for your promise you said that if I go, it's actually better uh, for us, for your disciples, because uh, your intention was to send another, the Holy Spirit, to help us, to teach us, to guide us into all truth. This morning, won't you help us? Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? And even as we look at these words, that you yourself inspired through people. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds that we would be uh, able to receive from you this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just to quickly add a little context to what we're about to read. Last week, we read about um, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus came up out of the water in the Jordan, it said that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, something that apparently appeared as a kind of dove and remained on him. And then he heard a voice from heaven, his heavenly father's voice, who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the point last week was that life in the spirit begins by the man or woman who trusts in Jesus receiving a new identity. In the same way Jesus himself, um, his identity was affirmed in that moment by the Holy Spirit who descended and remained upon him. We too in Jesus, as we trust and obey Jesus, also experience a 
we receive a new identity. Jesus described it as being born again. It's like we get adopted into God's family and we experience that identity transformation on like a deep, deep soul level, a very real soul level. And so that's what we talked about last week. Now, immediately after Jesus was baptized and he experienced that moment, it says the Holy Spirit then led him into the wilderness. And this is where we're going to jump in now. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to himself, or the devil said to him, that is Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him, set him Jesus, on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hand they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Immediately after Jesus came up out of the waters, had this incredible identity affirming moment. What a great moment. What an incredible thought that we get to experience that sort of adoption into God's family. And if, that, that, if there is any reason to celebrate this morning, that's, that's more than reason enough. I'm an adopted child of God. No matter what happens after this moment, my eternity is secure. I'm loved. I get to, to, to live out this incredible security of knowing that the creator of the universe looks at me and says, I love you. I'm pleased with you. Not because of anything I've done, but because I am in Jesus. I've gone down into the waters of baptism with him. I've lost my life and I have found it in his family, in his identity, in everything that he is and all that he's done for me. What a gift. What a gift. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's like a, a record scratch if there ever was one. I want to talk to you this morning about overcoming satanic temptation and getting out of the wilderness in your lifetime. I mean, that's really what we just read about. As, as bizarre as that might sound uh, when you say it out loud, this is exactly what we find the Spirit leading Jesus through in this moment, post-baptism. 
overcoming satanic temptation and getting out of the wilderness in your lifetime. I want to look at each one of the temptations specifically. And forgive me if you've already heard like 20 sermons on this passage. It's just really that rich. There's so much that can be said. Typically, if a pastor is going to preach on spiritual warfare, this idea that we're living in a world that's not merely material, but there are invisible forces. There's an angelic realm. There's light and there's dark. There's angels and demons. And they're somehow actively engaged in this world and trying to affect our lives for better or for worse. And and so we find ourselves, if you are a follower of Jesus, caught up in this very real battle that is sometimes referred to as spiritual warfare. We're not going to talk about spiritual warfare per se this morning, although we could. Talk about something slightly different. I want to highlight some things within this passage that we've just read that I think are going to help us tremendously. Let's look at the temptations. Temptation number one, Jesus being led by the Spirit goes out into the wilderness, fast for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, we're told that he's hungry, okay? And then the devil comes to him, and in verse 3 it says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, immediately, let's imagine we're ancient, first century uh, Ancient near, I don't know how you say it these days, um, ancient near eastern Palestinian Jews. Let's say we are living during the time that this story would have been commonly told as God's people gathered. Immediately you would have been transported back in to the ancient story of God. When God's people had been delivered out of Egypt, they had just passed through the waters of deliverance. They had come out on the other side. Now they're finding themselves passing through the wilderness on their way to the mountain of God. And what happens? They're hungry. They get really hungry. And everywhere they look, all they can see are dirt and rocks. Just dirt and rocks. And they cry out to God for food. First water. And then something with a little more sustenance. If you are the son of God, if you truly are a child of God, then why don't you use why don't you use your divine gift? Why don't you use the skill, the talent that God has given you to, uh, to turn a rock into a loaf of bread? What a, what a bizarre temptation. What a bizarre temptation. What is that all about? If you can get your needs met, Using the gift that God has given you, well, then why not? What is Satan doing? I would suggest that Satan is tempting Jesus with the opportunity to gain control. It's the garden all over again. Genesis chapter 3, I think we touched on it. Well, like virtually every week. The serpent, the tempter, comes to the woman in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. But in the beginning, there was a garden and it was like a paradise. The man and the woman were enjoying perfect, intimate relationship with one another and their creator. And then along came this serpent. 
this sort of sinister creature who tempted the woman to take from this fruit. And the promise was that you can become like God. You can gain wisdom. You can also acquire a knowledge of good and evil and circumvent the, the sort of the, the arrangement that you would have to depend upon God for that kind of wisdom. And here, once again, we find the tempter coming to say, look, at, you can actually get what you want and not actually have to depend on God directly. You have been given the power. In fact, later on, we'll read that Jesus will go on to feed thousands. It was his God prerogative. He, God in the flesh, was able to actually turn water into wine and multiply fish and loaves. And he could have done it. He could have done it. He could have worked the miracle. But how does he respond instead? Jesus actually quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Of course, he's been, he's been meditating on Deuteronomy just like we do all the time. He says, and I'll, I'll actually read it in context. Jesus responds... Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you through these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, fed you with manna. It's like a bread, which you did not know of, nor did your fathers know of, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In his moment of weakness, the question was, would Jesus grasp for control himself? Or would he continue to rely upon the faithfulness of his father? This is a kind of temptation we face think in our own lives all the time. You find yourself in a situation and you know you have the means to get what you want. Perhaps even God has given you uh, skills, uh, understanding, opportunities, a family, money, health, whatever it is you might enjoy in this life. And you know that you could get from A to B and you don't necessarily need God. So one might think, and so the temptation is, I can make this happen, and I can even use the gifts that God has given me without actually including God himself. Of course, I'll give him some recognition, but I don't actually need God. I don't actually need to be wholly dependent upon God to get what I'm after. And so that's the temptation. That's the temptation. You can have control. You can make it happen. You don't really need God to achieve your goal. Jesus understood that there was more at stake than just getting his stomach full. Jesus understood that ultimately... There's a deeper hunger that we're all, that we all experience in life. Have you ever actually um, had a goal? 
perhaps even something that felt relatively impossible. And Eugene, that God may or may not have been a part of that process. Of course, if you're a Christian, we're really good at trying to co-opt God into achieving our plans. But occasionally, I think we're forced to a moment of honesty and, uh, and come to terms with the fact that, well, maybe, maybe I didn't really need God to achieve that goal. Have you ever achieved that thing, whatever it may have been for you, only to realize that it wasn't actually what you were truly looking for? That that meal, as good as it was, as wonderful as the moment was, in the end, you're just still kind of hungry? Have you ever had high fructose corn syrup? Okay, this is the spiritual equivalence of that. It actually leaves you hungrier than when you started. In the moment, there's nothing better than high fructose corn syrup. All over the pancakes, mmm, the best. It doesn't satisfy. You know, later on, we'll read about Jesus ministering to some, uh, to a woman at a well. It's an, it's an incredible story. It's just a beautiful story. She's this woman who's been completely ostracized by her community. We don't know all of the details, but we know that she's looked down on. She has no integrity. Her identity has just been ripped to shreds. And so she has to go to the well in the middle of the afternoon all by herself because apparently the, the other women in the community wouldn't have anything to do with her. So it would seem. And so she meets Jesus at this well. Now Jesus' disciples had actually gone on ahead and left him alone to get some food because he was famished. But while they're away, he ministers to this woman. He begins to tell her everything about herself. And it's this incredible moment. And, and then she realizes who she's actually talking to. And Jesus says, look, I can give you what you're looking for. The thirst you came here with, that's not what you're really thirsting for. I can restore your dignity. I can make you new again. I can give you the love that you've been looking for your whole life that you thought you could get through all of these different relationships and these men who in the end just reject you to leave you feeling broken. That's not bash on men. This is just the story, right? Jesus says, I have what you're looking for. I can give you the water you're dying for. She has this experience. Eventually the disciples uh, catch up with Jesus and they, Jesus, we got, we got the food. And he's like, no, I'm good. I have food that you know not of. And he says, I, I have gained deep satisfaction doing the will of my father. Deep satisfaction. Not just in getting the thing that I'm, that I desire in the moment, and God knows we need to be fed. Like obviously we have to pay our bills and we have to feed our kids and we need some bread for our stomachs, and God knows that. He feeds us just like he feeds the birds. And he'll use us to feed each other if we're loving each other well. But what God offers us is more than just a loaf of bread, more than just sustenance for the moment. He offers us himself the temptation that will settle for just the moment. Quick fix, the goal. We'll even use the gift that God gave us to get what we think we're after. 
Jesus doesn't fall for it. Jesus understood that this was actually about faith. Important. This temptation is really about faith. Instead of seizing control and using the gift to achieve the goal, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do anything unless it's in direct partnership with my father. I trust that my father will give me bread, just like he fed your fathers, just like he fed his people in the desert. My father will feed me. I do not need to grasp for control in this moment. Temptation number two. You guys doing all right? You with me? Verses five through seven, Satan tries again. He takes Jesus to a place or somehow a vision. I don't know how it works, but he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And then he says to Jesus, I can give you all of this. I can give you every kingdom. I can give you all authority. I can make you the king that you, were no, that you know you were born to be. Just worship me and it will all be yours in a moment. This is God's plan minus the painful process. Jesus, he was born king. He would eventually take his rightful place on his throne, the right hand of his father in heaven, and rule all over the entire cosmos. This was his destiny. This was what he was born for. This is where he was headed. And the temptation was we can expedite the process. We can get you where we both know that you are destined to go only a whole lot quicker. We can circumvent the painful process, the journey along the way. Just worship me and we'll get it done. I'm happy to relinquish my authority. Satan actually made the claim that it was his authority to give. Was that true? It was. It was. Because when Adam and Eve chose to rebel, they relinquished the authority that God had given them in the garden. They gave up their authority as God's regent rulers on planet Earth. They relinquished their delegated authority and gave it to Satan all the way back then. And now Satan, he was well within his rights. He says, look, I've been ruling this planet for a long time now. I can give it to you. Mind to give. What do you say? What is God's plan again? Something about going to a cross? Something about losing your life? Something about suffering? Come on. We can expedite the process. We can get you from A to B and just minus that, that whole bit in between where you have to lose everything, where you have to surrender your very will under the will of your father. What is that all about? What kind of God is, are you serving anyway? This, this is the, the rhetoric. This is the tone, if, if I might take exegetical liberty. There's a quicker, less painful way to get what you want. And get to where you're going without suffering. So I would say this is a, if the first temptation was an offer for control, this is an, op, this is an offer for comfort. There's a way to do this whole God thing 
without suffering so much. That's the temptation. Now, I was at a wedding on a Friday, beautiful wedding. Um, the kiss, very sweet. The cupcakes, delicious. But that was just the wedding. How many of you know that the life after the wedding isn't just kisses and cupcakes? It's wonderful. But man, what a journey. What a journey. I remember before I got married, I was celibate for eight years. You guys have heard me tell the story. A few of you have. When I became a Christian, I was 24. And I'd have a whole series of relationships. They all ended around about a year or so. They were all pretty much dysfunctional from the outset, mostly to do with the sexual attraction and um, me just needing someone to make me feel a little more whole. And so they never really worked out. And then I became a Christian and I decided that I was going to just surrender my whole being, like my identity, my life, my sexuality, everything to the best of my ability to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I, I give up. I give up. I surrender. My life is no longer my own. So whatever you say, I'm, I'm down. I'm down to roll. And I began following Jesus. Sounds good, right? It's like, yeah, good, good job, Christian pastor. Eight years of celibacy. Eight years. I'm sorry, I'm still, still healing, still healing. I was like, I got married like 14 years ago. Still healing. The journey from receiving this new identity and, and being filled with the love of God and being overwhelmed with, man, this is, this is great. Like Jesus is going to be Lord of my life and I'm going to follow him and trust him. And he's going to heal me and help me and, and restore me and all these things. And then the wilderness. And then Jesus leads us to that place where we begin this very hard, difficult, painful process of of being changed of learning to to live uh not just from a to b not just trying to get my needs met or my my goals or whatever but actually allowing jesus to transform me and to do something inside of me and and work things out of me and it's all incredibly wonderful and painful and Ultimately, it's Jesus teaching me how to take up my cross every day, die to myself so that I can find my new life in relationship with him. But the process of learning how to die to oneself, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's painful. It's painful. And we read last week in Romans 8 that we experience all these wonderful things in Jesus, adoption and the spirit telling our spirit that we are children of God, provided we're willing to suffer with him. And so the process, it's part of the package deal. And that's good news. That's actually good news. Because sometimes it can kind of feel like, man, I'm in the wilderness and I thought it was going to feel different, only now everything is incredibly hard. And am I doing something wrong? Am I somehow, have, have, am I causing this? Is God punishing me? Is Jesus not who I thought he was going to be for me? Maybe for everyone else, but 
why? Why why is this so difficult for me? And the good news is, is that oftentimes when we're going through seasons in life like that, it's because Jesus has got us on this journey. He's teaching us and helping us and using, yes, sometimes even Satan, that old ancient pawn, to work good things into us. Now, of course, sometimes, let's just be real, we can be real um, dummies. <laughs> and trust me, like I can look back and, and, and think about some of the most painful seasons in my, my life and take full credit for them. So I'm like, look, that was just dumb. Like that was me sinning, being self-centered, not trusting Jesus. And where, where did it get me other than just like a whole heap of shame hopelessness, brokenness, etc. Jesus' response, give you all the kingdoms. We can expedite the process. We can get you to where you know you are called to be minus the pain. And this is what Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You shall worship the Lord your God, serve, serve him only. We've been created to worship. You know that? Fundamentally, my life, your life, it's not about you, it's not about me. We've been created to reflect the beauty of our creator. What a hard when life becomes about me, life becomes unbearable. It's a weight that no human is, can bear, not for long. But when we reorient our lives around our creator, when the most beautiful, lovely thing in our existence is God himself, and we begin to reflect his beauty, we begin to experience life as we are meant to experience it. But worship requires a rhythm. When we get here on Sunday mornings and we sing, it's a way of worshiping. In fact, it's a very, it's a very biblical way of worshiping. Jesus and his disciples were, were told they would sing, sing hymns together. So we're partic participating in an ancient tradition. And you know, when we get here, it's not like, okay, cool, Hannah, three songs, da, 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 let's, let's, Pick up the tempo, let's get it done so that we can get on to the next thing because I'm not really into singing. Okay, that's not what's happening when we worship. Worship is a way of slowing down and saying, reminding ourselves, this is so not about me. And we direct our attention. We redirect our affection to our creator, our God, our good father. We begin to sing his praises. Occasionally, we'll even sing about ourselves, but really only in the context that like, we're reminding ourselves of who I used to be and, and how God, by his grace, rescued me. And what a, what a thing to sing about. The worship causes us to slow down. And we realize I'm not just trying to get from A to B. God isn't even interested in just getting me from A to B. He's not just trying to expedite the process. Otherwise, he would just take us all home now. 
He's doing something in the process. He's actually allowing us to experience long, sometimes long seasons of weakness that he might display his faithfulness, his power through our lives. He takes us on these very long, windy journeys through wilderness places, uh, giving us opportunities not to seize control, not to expedite the process, but to simply follow him and to rest in him and to, and to, to realize in new, painful, but wonderful ways that he is such a good and strong father. And even when he is allowing us to suffer, it's not because it's like, well, this is how we earn our stripes. No, it's by Jesus' stripes that I've been saved and am being healed. Okay, we're not called to simply suffer so that somehow we can prove to God that we really are worth his time and sacrifice on the cross. That is not Christian suffering. That's something else. That's weird and twisted. God takes us on these journeys and calls us, now slow down, slow down. You're made to worship me. I want to do something in your life now that is going to demonstrate my power in your weakness. Do not expedite this process. If it takes eight years, it takes eight years. Trust me, your marriage is going to be better for it. Do not expedite this process. And I'm saying that specifically for anyone in here who's like, man, I'd really like to get married. It's been eight years now. Trust me, don't rush the process. Trust me. It takes 20 years, it takes 20 years. Trust God. Your marriage is designed to be an act of worship. I love the old 19th century Anglican um, marriage vows. There's a line in there. We don't really say it anymore because we've kind of lost the context, but it said this, with my body, I thee worship. That's what you would say to the person you are marrying. With my body, I thee worship. Our marriage, our union is meant to be an expression of worship because there's something within it. There's mysterious realities of marriage that's actually meant to point out. It's not about me, it's about us. God is revealing himself through this thing. Jesus understood that this journey to and through the cross it would require patience. Patience. Not something we're super good at these days, like on a societal scale. Temptation number three, and then we'll wrap up. So Satan tried to tempt him with control. You can just make this happen. Never mind God. Uh, that doesn't work. So he said, offer some comfort. Okay, I can get you to where you're going, minus the pain. Let's just expedite the process. But his third attempt, now this, this one's wily. This one's different. Satan actually quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. Psalm 91 says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near to your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone, a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, or serpent, the young lion and the serpent, 
you will trample underfoot. I think it's hilarious how the enemy decided to leave that little bit out. The angels will protect you and you'll crush the head. Wait, no, leave that part out. Scratch that last bit. That's actually a prophecy about how you're going to destroy me. It's as if the enemy is saying, fine, you want to suffer? You want to do it God's way? Then go ahead. And he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down. You want to do it the hard way? God's way. Which isn't the hard way, it's the good way. But you want to do it that way? Fine. Throw yourself down. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now throw yourself down. What is this? What is this? The pinnacle of the temple is the, the, the pinnacle of the religious system. He takes him to the very pinnacle of the religious system. He says, throw yourself down. If sacrifice is so valuable, then go ahead. God will bless you, right? God will protect you, right? God is obligated to catch you, right? is this what kind of temptation is this jesus's response he goes back to deuteronomy this time in chapter six and he says you shall not put the lord your god to the test the third temptation is what i simply call religion or transactional spirituality this idea that okay fine you want to do it god's way you want to be all saintly and and, and trust God and, and go through the process, fine. We can play that game. And Satan takes them up to the very pinnacle of the religious system. He says, throw yourself down because if you do that, then God is obligated to do something in return for you. Guys, this is, oh, this is sneaky. This will get you, if you get the first two right, the enemy will definitely try to get you with this one. Fine, you're gonna do the right thing. You're gonna trust God. You're gonna do all this stuff. You're gonna take up your cross. Fine, we can play that game. Let's just take it to the next level. You want to be religious? Let's do religious. And he says, go ahead. Throw yourself down. Lay down your life. God's obligated to catch you. It's this idea that if you do this, then God will do that. If you obey all the rules and do exactly what God expects from you, then he is obligated to bless you to protect you, to do everything you want him to do for you in that matter. That is transactional spirituality. It's this idea that what God wants is some sort of manipulative kind of relationship where it's like we barter for favors. All right, God, I'll do it your way. But if I do, then you got to kick down. You got to give me what I want. I have certain expectations. I'm presuming that you're going to do what I want, because I'm doing everything you're asking me. Could you imagine if we actually like did relationship like that? Are you guys with me? Some of you are like, I, that, I thought that's how it worked. Isn't that how it works? Like I do what God wants me to do and then he blesses me, right? No, 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 no. That's completely backwards. When I was still dead in my sin, when I had done nothing to impress God or earn his favor, on the contrary, I had done everything 
to deserve his wrath. In fact, the Bible says explicitly that we are all born by nature as children of wrath. That's, that's like the state we're born in. Which is why God went on a rescue mission to save us. He loved us so much, he didn't just stand back like, wow, you guys really screwed this world up. Good luck. Look out for those fireballs. No, he enters in. And he says, look, my wrath is coming. And the way I once destroyed the earth in a flood, I am going to judge the world again next time in fire. But before that happens, I am on a rescue mission to storm the gates of hell. And every time a son or daughter comes home, he says, now here's a sword and here's a shield. Here's a breastplate. You you ready to go back out onto the battlefield? There are more lost sons and daughters that I want to rescue and I want to include you. Let's Let's go storm the gates of hell. That's what he does. Pumps me up. I digress. What was I saying? Religion versus relationship. Religion says, if I do all these things, God, for you, then you are obligated to reward me. Backwards. God says, you have done nothing to earn my reward. But because I love you, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to come down and die for you. And now because of who God is and what he has done for me, now I begin to live this life of response. I'm not worshiping God. I'm not obeying God. I'm not trusting God in an attempt to get something from him. He's already given me everything for God's sake. My whole life now is this response of like, I'm rich. I'm rich. My God loves me. He died for me. There's no good thing that he's withholding from me. My whole life is now becoming this like overflowing expression of worship and love. I love not to get something from him, but because I have been loved. Don't fall for the temptation of religion. It is exhausting. You will get let down over and over and over. You know, I'm convinced why so many people end up just leaving the church just bitter and jaded and exhausted it's because of the third temptation. Like, man, I did everything. I gave, I served, I, I, I put others first. I did all this stuff and I, I had this hope that somehow if I did all these things, then God would give me what I want, what I deserve. Dang it, I, I gave up everything. And it never works. It never works because God is not a God to be manipulated. God gives because that's his nature. The true life of freedom, the life of love that Jesus saves us for, the life of simply responding, I have Can we stand together, please? on this final note and then we're going to worship I started out by saying that oftentimes this is um, 
This is usually a passage that's used to teach on spiritual warfare, and that's fine, that's fine. But I would argue that this isn't really about spiritual warfare. This isn't the battle. This wilderness scene, this, this life that's actually, that we are invited into, because this isn't just about Jesus. This is life in the spirit. So in the same way Jesus goes to the wilderness, we go through the wilderness. We follow Jesus, but eventually Jesus leaves the wilderness. Okay, in like the wilderness, when God's people were rescued out of Egypt and they crossed through the waters, which are the waters of baptism, they go into the wilderness. They weren't meant to spend like two generations in that wilderness. They were meant to get to the mountain and then get to the promised land and start slaying giants. The wilderness was preparation. God saying, now look, I need you to, I need you to get a few things because we're gonna go face some giants and I'm telling you, you don't know how to fight. You've never swung a sword a day in your life. But if you'll trust me, if you'll be still and know that I am your God who fights for you, oh, then this is gonna work out. But they never learned the lessons. They just kept going around and around and around and around. They didn't pass the temptations. The wilderness is preparation for the real battle. Now Jesus would eventually face the real battle. You know what the real battle was? It was back in the garden. It wasn't on the cross. It was in the garden of Gethsemane where he had to make that decision. Is it gonna be my father's will or my will? That's when he sweat blood. That was it. Now the victory was on the cross and thereafter when he laid down his life and came back again. Now that was, that was like the victory chant. But the real battle, like when it came right down to it was in that garden on the eve of his crucifixion. Everyone had left him. He was all alone. It was just him and his God. Sweating blood. Lord, I don't want to do this. Father, I just, if there's any other way, I'm begging you. Not my will, but your will be done. And the battle was won. Guys, the wilderness, it's, it's those moments along the way. So I'm being, I'm being given opportunity after opportunity to, like, I'm not going to expedite the process. I'm not going to look for the shortcuts. I'm not going to try to simply avoid suffering and find the most comfortable place. I'm not going to choose the, the, the gift and ignore the gift giver. I'm not going to use the gifts that God has given me to get the thing forgetting the fact that actually it's God, he's the gift. He's the one, he, who, he is the one who provides true satisfaction. If we can begin to practice these things, uh, recognize when those temptations come and say, no, not today, devil. I'm not falling for it. I have the spirit of God living in me. I know what's happening. I see right through it. I'm gonna find my satisfaction in God himself. I'm gonna rejoice when I'm going through trials because I know God's doing something really, really good through that process. And I'm not gonna fall for religion. Dang it, not again. My father's good. I'm trying to get something from him as if he would withhold any good thing from his kids. So get out of that wilderness. Start slaying giants. Get out of this, out in this city. You guys notice the van parked across the street? One of these days, I'm praying that this couple are gonna walk in this building and we're gonna embrace them as family. We're gonna share the grace of God with them. 
from getting me out. Let's get some new tires on your van. Let's get this thing out of here, man. Let's get you back on your feet. Let's get you fed. Let's get you, let's get you healed. Let's get you fixed up. You need a family, we got a family. We're not perfect, but man, we're, we're gonna go someplace together. Start to clean up this city around us. We all come from neighborhoods around the city. What a gift, we're a church that's all spread out geographically. Now for some of you, you're like, oh, I hate that. I'm with you, but what there is, there's some potential there. The grace gets spread far and wide. And we've all got our respective communities that we're gonna go back to, our neighbors that we're gonna connect with, our workplaces, our, our campuses. Guys, we're gonna be salt and light out in this world. We're gonna take what we've been given, the good gift that we've received and begin to share it with the world. We go to the deeper well that never ever runs out. That you need love? Are you, are you frustrated with what this world has to offer? Cool, me too. Can I introduce you to the one who offers living water? Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.